Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. I'm Ben Felder, joined by Carmen Foreman. We're here at the state capitol, here on the second floor rotunda, so some of the sounds of the of the capitol are behind us. Although it's a little quieter than it's been the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's always busy every day, Carmen. There's lots of people up here. Today was Rose Day. It's a lot of anti-abortion protests taking place here. So a little, a little time to reflect on the last couple of weeks of what we've seen in session. How's it been going for you, Carmen? Sure. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's been a quick start to session. It usually is. Um, we got through the state of the state and then lawmakers started, you know, hearing bills in committee and we've heard some big ones and I think we'll discuss that later. Um, uh, education scholarship account bill that um, from Pro Tem Treat. Um, but meanwhile, you know, these committees are just started getting rolling. There's thousands of bills and you know, who knows where we could go from here. Yeah, we're at the time where we kind of see which bills have traction, which ones don't, or at least which bills kind of have the opportunity to get through committees. Let's talk about that um, education savings account, so-called voucher bill, um, that actually made news before we even heard the bill, and that was last week, I think it was last week, uh, House Speaker Charles McCall was asked about this, uh, this bill, which would essentially allow parents to use the funding, the state funding that follows their kid to a school, so if they go to a school, the, the funding follows that kid to that school, and if they transferred, it would go to the other school. It would allow that parent to use that money for private school tuition, uh, often referred to as vouchers, although some of the proponents aren't, aren't a big fans of the voucher term. But that's essentially what it is. But we heard from McCall that this bill, which is being introduced by uh, Speaker Pro Tem Treat, um, that they don't plan to hear it in the House. Right. And um, in addition to private schools, uh, homeschool, homeschool students could school, also yeah. use it. And and instead of just using it for tuition, you could use it for books or fees or, you know, other educational materials that you need for school. But yeah, Speaker McCall <laughs> dropped a bomb last week when he basically said, you know, oh, this bill that everybody's talking about and the governor just highlighted in his state of the state speech and was like, this needs to get to the finish line. He basically said, you know, yeah, this is not going to get heard in the House. And that could go one of two ways. One, he could be very sincere. He could know his members very well already, and they maybe have already caucused on the issue and decided there's no support or not enough support for that measure in the House. Or two, the other option is that Speaker McCall could be playing hardball, right? There could be something that the Speaker wants, uh, some sort of legislation, something he wants in the budget, and maybe he would like to see that get along further before the House takes up this so-called voucher bill. Yeah, I mean, it may be a bargaining chip, but a pretty big one. Yeah. It seems pretty risky to me to use this. Vouchers are such a, a, a sticky subject. Of course, the Democrats are against it, but the Republicans have such a big majority, they don't need the Democrats to go along. So the fact that this is stalled, or, or seemingly stalled in the House, would say that there are enough Republicans against this that it wouldn't get support. And one of the reasons we're seeing that is because of the so-called urban-rural divide. And you look, and you kind of see it when you look at Treat and you look at McCall. I mean, Treat is a Oklahoma City Republican and lives in the suburbs of Oklahoma City. McCall is from Atoka, a small town of, I'm not even sure, maybe 12,000 people. Um, and vouchers just aren't uh, very popular in rural communities. Yeah, I think Speaker McCall literally said, like, what's a kid going to do with a voucher in Atoka? Because there's nowhere else to go to school other than your public schools. And the interesting thing when you get to the House, and, and you see this somewhat in the Senate, but with fewer senators, it's not as noticeable. But, you know, in the House, like, the Democrats predominantly represent the big metro areas. And they're obviously against vouchers, as you said. But then Republicans more so represent the rural areas. And so this has become quite the rural-urban issue in that a lot of 
rural Republicans are saying, no, this isn't what my school districts want. This isn't what the schools in my area say. They say it's not good for them. So the support seems wavering among Republicans in rural areas. Yeah, and even the support in the Senate, kind of iffy. It took the, uh, the speaker himself um, and some leaders to come down and vote to pass this through committee this week. Yeah, it was such a close vote. I mean, it, it was an eight to seven vote. And the, the way the Senate works is that the Senate pro tem and the Senate majority floor leader, that's Greg McCourtney, they can vote on any committee. And so if you have a close vote, you call one of them up and they cast a vote in your, their favor, you know, just to get your bill passed. Um, but seeing that it passed so narrowly in the Senate committee, I mean, I would guess a close floor vote as well. I mean, knowing that, you know, this is a priority of Senate pro tem Greg Treat and knowing it's a priority of Governor Kevin Stitt, I would assume it would pass the Senate floor. But, you know, as we've heard, it doesn't sound like it's going anywhere when it gets to the House. Yeah. And you would, you know these personalities far better than most anyone when we're talking about, you know, the leadership. It would. I mean, both leaders probably don't want to propose a bill that they don't think has a chance of, of you know have a chance of passing. I mean, nobody wants to put, put up a huge fight and see their own bill defeated on the floor. Um, but it it kind of seems to me that Treat is a little. I don't know. I was thinking about this today that his personality might be a little bit more of like I think I've got the votes, but I also think I can make a compelling case as this thing moves along. And maybe McCall is a lot more. I don't know what the right word would be, but would hedge his bets a lot more. Wouldn't want to put something forward that he thinks would be kind of a, t- a tough, not that he's not willing to fight for it, but it just seems like maybe Treat's like, this, this could be a tough vote, but I believe in it and I'm willing to kind of fight for it along the way. Oh, I think you're reading the room very closely there. I mean, like Speaker McCall just seems like he holds his cards close to his vest more so. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, Senate pro tem Greg Treat has said numerous times about this bill. He says it's basically for him, go big or go home, yeah. right? And this is a big change. And frankly, it, it might get more support in the House or at least enough support in the House if they watered it down a little bit, maybe took some smaller steps towards um, voucher reform or school choice reform, whatever you want to call it, um, and then maybe built to this bigger reform over years or something. This is a pretty big step from what we've seen. And we've seen some small kind of voucher-esque bills in the past. Lindsay Nicole Henry scholarship that allows uh, you know, students, some students with disabilities and other, you know, challenges may be able to use a little state money to go towards private schools. But this one kind of leapfrogs a lot of steps. So maybe you're right. Maybe this is just a chance to kind of bring in some of those smaller steps down, down the road. But, but you also mentioned that Governor Kevin Stitt addressed this in his State of the State address. Um, so he's a big proponent of it. it, it maybe, I mean, I mean, hey, the governor, I think, is also someone who's willing to fight, right? You know, you know put up a, a big issue that he thinks he's going to win on and fight for it along the way. Um, but you have to think that Treat and Stitt knew that McCall wasn't on board with this. Yeah, I, I would. I, I mean, I would guess. I thought it was interesting after the governor's state of the state speech how much uh, his priorities aligned with Greg Treat's priorities. I mean, the grocery tax, the, uh, the school choice expansion. Um, I just thought, oh wow, you see a lot of alignment there. But the House, you know, not necessarily on board with all of that. Yeah. And then you have State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister, who's opposed to this. She's opposed to it as a superintendent. She's also opposed as the uh, pr- uh, presumptive Democrat frontrunner, challenging Stitt. 
So it's almost like this is, I mean, as it often is in election year, it's a policy debate, it's also election debate. And you wonder if just looking at this is like, okay, maybe, maybe we're not gonna get this passed this year, but if vouchers become a big issue this election and I win, and chances are likely that he will win, at least based on the math right now, then maybe he comes in next year with a so-called mandate of saying, listen, uh, vouchers were a big issue. Uh, the Democratic, my opponent was against it, I was for it. You know, I went across the state advocating for it and I won and I won big, especially in rural communities. So this is something that we need to push forward for next year. Yeah, absolutely. And I could see him discussing it on the campaign trail, whether it passes or not. I mean, he could go, you know, if he's setting up his differences between himself and Joy Hoffmeister, you know, presumably if we get to the general election and those are the two candidates at the front, then, I mean, he could go through the state and say, oh, you wanted more school's choice options? Well, my opponent over there, Joy Hoffmeister, she was against it. I wanted to do that, but she fought it and she brought it down. And maybe she looks at this as an opportunity to gain some points. I mean, it is not popular in rural areas, and we know how well Stitt did in rural parts of the state. So maybe this is an opportunity for, for Joy to, to you know, gain a little uh, percentage points in the rural areas. I'm not sure. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. But the election is you know, already underway. We're already seeing some indications of that um, on, on television. I was watching the Super Bowl on Sunday. Um, obviously watching the commercials and my 10 year old son noticed and said hey there's an ad with the governor on it he said he knew that didn't make sense because so many of these ads are, are you know it's all national and big corporations I said well no there are some local ads and but those are those still get a lot of play on Super Bowl Sunday and one of those ads was an anti-state commercial correct yeah uh, this group called the Oklahoma Project they paid about a hundred thousand dollars to air the a 30-second spot that's critical of Governor Stitt and basically saying that Governor Stitt hasn't delivered on his promise to make us a top 10 state, specifically in the areas of education and public safety. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, you watch the Super Bowl, pretty much everybody else in the state watches the Super Bowl. I'm one of those weirdos that like is not super into sports, so I like watched a quarter of the Super Bowl just trying to keep my eyes out for this commercial. Well, what's interesting to me is it's not this pack is against it, but they haven't necessarily supported any uh, challenger yet. So this, this is an ad mainly probably meant to take down Stitt's favorables and is not necessarily advocating a, a challenger yet. Exactly, and if you look at how early in the race we are, I mean, right now there's not really a strong Republican candidate that could take on Governor Stitt. So he's likely to coast through the primary. So right now you're just trying to change people's opinions of the governor. You're not trying to sway them toward Joy Hoffmeister or Connie Johnson or anybody else. You're just trying to plant that seed in somebody's mind saying, hey, maybe this governor isn't delivering on all the things he told you he was going to deliver on. Yeah. And then over the coming months, you build on that, build on that, build on that. And then presumably, maybe at some point, this pack backs the challenger to Stitt. And the commercial really highlighted his uh, top 10 moniker, kind of the unofficial campaign slogan of three years ago. Um, and basically saying, hey, he said he wanted to make Oklahoma top 10 state in all these areas and we're not. Now, I think even, you know, when, if you go back to three years ago, I remember when the governor started using that as a candidate, top 10, you knew that, it, that this was going to be used against them, right? I mean, it's like make America great again, right? You know, four years later, have you made it great again? And then, you know, your opponents are going to kind of use that against you. And so I think it's going to be kind of interesting to see. We're going to hear a lot about top 10 and bottom 10. And I thought what was interesting in this ad was, um, you know, they're pointing out that you know, hey, you know, we're not top 10 in a lot of these areas of health and education and, and, and a variety and, you know, the economy. Now, maybe four years, 
is not enough time to really get to top 10, but he made the promise, not us, yeah. um, so he can be held accountable to it. I also thought it was interesting that they point on education because the governor, it, you know, it, while he's pointing to ways that he thinks the state is top 10, he's highlighting an area where we are bottom 10. Yes. That's an education. He literally said that in his state of the state address. Which is under his watch, Yes. but is also primarily under the watch of his biggest opponent right now in Hoffmeister. Right. And, and Stitt, Governor Stitt has told me before, you know, hey, my hands are really tied on the education front. I have all these things I would like to do, but I don't really have a lot of control over OSDE or, you know, schools themselves. And so, I don't know, I could see us going into the campaign and him blaming Hofmeister for why we're, you know, bottom 10 in education. Yeah. And she has said that, you know, this, he has not been a governor that's partnered with her a lot. Although, this, to be fair, as whether it's a good or a bad thing, this governor has not been involved in education policy for the bulk of, um, of his first term. And I, I don't mean by being involved, I mean it just has not been a priority. We have not seen you know, bold education initiatives from him until this year, and it really kind of catapulted off of COVID where we saw you know, a lot of parents that were upset about masks or, or virtual schools, and you know, he really started to get into the education fray. And, and now he's running as you know, he's never called himself the education governor, but he's kind of running now with education as a major platform for himself. Yeah, or he's trying to, anyway. trying to, against an opponent that obviously is coming from the education world. Right, and then I think about the public safety issue. I mean, that the ad highlighted that we're not, we're definitely not top 10 in public safety. I think we can all agree on that. But that's, you know, like a key, I feel like that's a key Republican conservative issue, you know, back the blue, fund law enforcement, make our cities secure and safe. I mean, we saw pretty much every conservative candidate running for Oklahoma City mayor run on a campaign of we're going to pay law enforcement more. We're going to increase the number of officers on the street. We're going to reduce crime. And so like to say that, you know, we're underwhelming in public safety, I think that goes that speaks a little more maybe to Stitt's base. Yeah, and I want to mention, talk about something that we heard in the state of state. I don't want to spend too much time on it because that address now was, seems like forever ago, uh, two weeks ago. Um, but when you and I were talking after that, that, that was a very partisan speech from a guy that hasn't been very partisan, at least in the past. I mean, he came in as a very conservative guy and, and definitely a Republican. But, you know, he also came into office talking about wanting to be a governor for all four million people and talked about wanting to work with Democrats and even pointed some Democrats to his cabinet early on. This speech, you know, the line that really stuck with me was he said there's never been a bigger difference between red states and blue states. And then he made the case for why red states are the way to go and you risk a lot if you go down the blue state path. You know, obviously maybe a, a dig at his Democratic opponent, um, but this is a very partisan governor now. Yeah, and I think we'll... I guess see that perhaps throughout session as as he decides what bills to sign and what bills not to sign perhaps but I don't know he's 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 never I mean he hasn't shied away from political hot button issues before oh. if we look at the critical race theory ban so-called critical race theory ban that he signed last year um, anti-abortion bills can be very political very controversial yeah I guess four years ago he was an outsider, but he's very much a politician now, well, as anybody he, would be three years ago. I don't know. He, he still tries to bill himself as an outsider, sort of, and saying he's, you know, in government, but he's trying to change it and, and take the political insiderness out of it, you know. And I, I still hear him talk on 
podcasts and things about how, oh, you wouldn't believe how when I got in here, how deep, he's basically insinuating how deep lobbying ties are to the Capitol and how, you know, certain interest groups can get bills killed, even if they're what, what that bill might be better for the state of Oklahoma than killing it. But I still hear him talk about it a fair amount. I don't know if he still thinks he's affecting as much change in that area or if he's just kind of, I guess, accepted that's that's sort of how government's always going to be. Yeah, well, no one runs as an insider. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's just the case. Well, before we wrap up here, anything else that you're kind of keeping an eye on? I mean, what do you expect? Uh, you know, this, this podcast will air on Friday, so going into the next week, uh, any, any big issues you're going to be watching out for? Going into the next week, I mean, I think at these fir- first early weeks of session, they've kind of steered clear of some of the controversial issues. Um, we haven't seen a lot of anti-abortion bills come up yet. Actually, I don't think I've seen any come up yet. I've There might be a couple vaccine mandate bills up this week, but there's like a whole raft of controversial bills just sort of laying and waiting and... I'm curious to see when or if they will come up. Yeah, well, still plenty of time. Well, maybe not. I mean, a few more weeks until the deadline to get out of the initial committee. So there will be a deadline coming up. Um, And as reporters, we know all too well that uh, a lot of times your best work gets done right up against deadlines. So I'm sure we'll see a lot of those bills. So, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Political State with Carmen Foreman. I'm Ben Felder. Uh, Check us out at oklahoman.com. Read us every day in the Oklahoman. And we'll be be back with you next week for another episode.